I've seen an activity performed perhaps at camp or even in a Bible school classroom where a child is blindfolded and he's teamed up with a single person who is giving him audible directions and he has to follow his friends audible directions to accomplish a certain task. Meanwhile, the other members of the group or the class are also offering audible directions in, in any number of directions, trying to distract this person, trying to keep him or her from hearing uh, his or her friend. And it's, an, it's a neat thing to witness you see this, this child or this teen or whomever it may be trying to listen carefully to his friend and, and follow those instructions while others are right in their ears yelling and trying to get them to do something far different. So imagine being that person that's blindfolded and having all of these voices in your ear and trying to figure out which way you're supposed to go and trying to key in on that one voice that you know is going to take you in the right direction. As I thought about that activity, I thought about how that's much like the world today. There are so many voices saying, you need to go this way, you need to go that way. And we're hearing all of these voices all proclaiming to have the right way. Or perhaps even others saying, trying to get you to go a particular way even though it's the wrong way but you have all these voices competing for our attention and we through this noise we have to figure out which voice is the is telling the truth and how can we zero in on that on that voice that's not only true as far as our world but even in the religious world even in the religious world there are a lot of voices saying this is the way that it is. This is the way you should go. This is how you're going to get there. So we still are listening and trying to discern what is the truth. How can we know it's the truth and, and how shall we follow? I want to give you that, that imagery in, to keep in mind as we look at 2 Peter chapter 2 this evening. 2 Peter chapter 2. We've been studying a theme, how then shall we live? What does God expect of Christians? And we're exploring this book of 2 Peter with that theme in mind. How are we to live? And based upon the teaching of 2 Peter 2, I want to try to summarize it like this. We need to be careful about to whom we listen. We need to be careful about to whom we listen. Again, borrowing from that activity of the blindfolded child or teen, all of these voices competing for our attention and leading us in different directions, we need to be careful about to whom we listen. And see if that doesn't come out in our text in 2 Peter chapter 2. Because the first verse, Peter is writing to these Christians and he's telling them to beware of false teachers. Beware of false teachers. Notice what he says about them in verse 1. But there are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. 
You see, in the New King James wording, it begins with this connected word, but, which ties it to the previous chapter. And the last verse of chapter 1 talks about how holy men of God spoke as they were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he's talking about the process of inspiration. And so he's pointing back to these prophets of old who were guided by God's Spirit as they proclaimed His will. And that would extend to the apostles and other inspired, inspired prophets and writers of our Bibles how the Holy Spirit guided them through the process of inspiration and in revealing the will of God. But at the same time as there were these inspired prophets and apostles, there were also false prophets. Again, many different voices coming in. And some of these voices that they were hearing were from false prophets, false teachers. It was true back then. And Peter's saying it's true in his day. It will always be true until Jesus comes. We must always beware of false prophets, false teachers. But notice the wording here. Three things about these false teachers that Peter mentions in verse 1. Number one, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Heresy, false teaching, and they'll secretly bring this in. It's not a bold and, and, and upfront, but secretly bringing in these, these false doctrines and, and being destructive in the process. Heresy. I like William Barclay's definition of a heretic. A heretic was a man who believed what he wished to believe instead of accepting the truth of God which he ought to believe. So a heretic bringing in some false teaching that he wants to believe and he wants others to believe. And so what was happening in Peter's day is that there were these certain self-styled prophets who were secretly persuading men to believe the things that they were teaching that weren't true to the truth of God. And they were, they were posing themselves as seeking their best interest and luring people away from God's truth with these false ideas to their own private opinions, which is what heresy is all about. One's private opinions that are contrary to the word of God. And so they secretly do this. Secondly, they, as they do so, they are denying the Lord who bought them. Who bought them. The imagery here is speaking of what Jesus did on the cross. He paid the price for the redemption of our sins. And when we accept his offer of salvation on his terms, he purchases our freedom, as, as Tucker prayed about. He paid the purchase price for our redemption. And when we accept his offer, we are purchased by him. We belong to him. A companion passage would be 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. And he says to Christians, You've been purchased by Christ. His blood purchased you. Paid the price for your freedom. Now you belong to Him. So serve Him accordingly. But these false teachers and, and bringing, in, 
bringing in their heretical teachings, their own ideas, their false ideas, were denying the Lord. They would say that they love the Lord and they're seeking to follow Him, but by their teaching and by their actions, they were denying the Lord. And Peter says of them that they're bringing on themselves swift destruction. Swift destruction. They were secretly introducing these destructive teachings and these heresies would, would in the end destroy them, destroy them and those who succumbed or followed their, their teaching. I thought about these words of Jesus. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom that offense comes. Millstone. What's a millstone? It's not this mortar and pestle. You know what I'm talking about? A ceramic-type bowl hollowed out, and you have this pestle that, that grounds whatever you put in it, and you, and you make that motion to grind that, whether it's corn or whatever. That's not, a, that's not the idea of a millstone. Think of a millstone weighing hundreds of pounds that would have to be turned by a beast of burden, an ox, an ox or, or a donkey. And these stones would, would grind this, the grain, separating the chaff from the, from the wheat. Or, but the hundreds of pounds, that's the millstone that Jesus is talking about. And he said, whoever would cause one of these little ones to sin, it would be better for him to put that millstone around his neck and be cast into the depths of the sea, which would take him straight to the bottom, right? So Jesus is serious about this. And he's saying, woe to him by whom those offenses come. And Peter is echoing that same idea that these, that these false prophets bringing in these destructive heresies they are bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So Peter doesn't mince words, and he's trying to underscore to these Christians, and we need to take heed. We need to be careful about to whom we listen. We're searching for the truth. There's the voice of truth that comes from God's Word, but there are other voices that are competing or even saying this is from God. And so we have to discern what is true and what is false. Because there are going to be those voices that will give false ideas that will lead to destruction. He continues, well, really through the whole chapter about the work of these false teachers. But notice with me what he says about them in verses 2 and 3. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In this short text, these two verses, notice four things about the false teachers. Number one, notice their motive. Verse three, by covetousness. Your Bible may have the word greed. Greed, covetousness is their motive. And it means literally to, to have more, 
That's what they're wanting, these false prophets, to have more. Whether it's to have more money, it may be to have more popularity, more prestige. But that's their motive. Their motive is not so much to get people to follow Jesus more closely. Their motive is to gain a following for themselves. And perhaps it is just simply that popularity, that notoriety that may come with convincing others to follow their line of reasoning. But that's their motive, greed, covetousness. We see the method, and that is the method of false teaching is exploitation with deceptive words. To exploit means to make use of meanly or unfairly for one's own advantage. These false prophets are only interested in themselves, and they use people for their own personal advantage. And they do so, they exploit people through deceptive words. Words that can even, may have a little truth in them. That's the most destructive when it has a little truth in it. But deceptive words as well. Trying to lead others astray. The words, the arguments may sound good, but they are deceptive and they lead in the wrong direction. What's the effect of false teaching? Notice with me. The effect is that it encourages people to, wait, to take the way of blatant immorality. Notice the first verse 2 again. Many will follow their destructive ways. Other versions state it like this. Many will follow their indecent behavior. Many will follow their sensuality. Many will follow their be, be, be depraved conduct. Even Jesus in the great Sermon on the Mount warned of false teachers. They are ravenous wolves that will come in sheep's clothing. How, would, how did he say that you would be able to know a false teacher? You shall know them by their fruits you follow their doctrine you see it lived out what does it look like does it look does it look more like jesus or it, does it lead to blatant immorality that's what peter is warning here many will follow their destructive ways their sensuality their depraved conduct that's the fruit of their teaching the word that's used here describes the attitude of a man who knows no shame and doesn't care about what others or even God thinks about what they're doing. They don't care. I just looked up a passage earlier. It said in Jeremiah, Jeremiah, prophet to Judah, who was steeped in idolatry. And Jeremiah is warning them, if you don't repent... Uh, God's going to cause Babylon to come and take you and serve Babylon for 70 years. And Jeremiah the prophet is bemoaning the, the spiritual state of the people of Judah. And he just says, are they ashamed of their actions? No, not at all. They've even forgotten how to blush. They've forgotten how to blush. Whereas... Because of their actions, they should be ashamed. But they don't, they, they've gotten past the shame. They don't feel that anymore because they succumb to this, this way of looking at their actions. 
It's interesting as you read 2 Peter chapter 2, exactly what these false prophets that he's addressing were teaching is not explicitly stated. But the idea that we get is this, that these false teachers were telling people that grace was inexhaustible and therefore they were free to sin any way they wanted to because there was plenty of grace to suffer, to, to cover it. Grace will cover you. It doesn't matter how you live. Enjoy whatever you want to. No limits, no bounds. God's grace will cover you. And you can see where that, that idea, that teaching would cause people to delve into blatant immorality. It's the kind of teaching that Paul confronted when he would ask this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Apparently that's what these false teachers were saying. Go ahead and sin. The more you sin, the more grace you get. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, Paul asks. And he answers, by no means, certainly not, God forbid. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? Grace is not a license to sin. Grace should be our greatest motivation to live for God, to live for Jesus. In, in the way that he wants us to live. So the effect of this teaching was it was causing those adherents to live in gross immorality. It led them into outright sin. It also brought Christianity into disrepute. The way of truth will be blasphemed, Peter says. Other version has the way of truth will be maligned. The way of truth or their actions will bring the way of truth into disrepute. Because of these false teachers and those who followed them, the way of Christ, the way of Christianity, was spoken against. People were seeing, imagine hearing this, they say they're followers of Jesus, who's called them to a higher level of living but the way they're living is just like everybody else in the world there is no difference in fact sadly in some of these cases they may have even said like Paul said of some Christian behavior in the church at Corinth the way that they're living is not even heard of in the world but that was the influence and the effect of this false teaching in the early days, just as now, every Christian was a good or a bad advertisement for Christianity. Let me take you to Titus chapter 2 to notice two references there. Paul is instructing Titus how to instruct the members of the church where he served as evangelist. And he tells them in that text to teach the older women, to teach the younger women... To love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. I want to underscore that. He's teaching them how to live according to the will of God as wives and mothers. So that their behavior will not blaspheme or be speak against the word of God. But that rather that their behavior would make the word of God attractive. It would attract other people 
to the way of Christ. Further down in Titus chapter 2, Paul writes to Titus about instructions to give to slaves who were Christians. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering or not stealing, but showing all good fidelity. Why? That they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. This may sound strange, thinking about slavery and how there would be Christians who were slaves. And we might think, well, that's not the will of God. And we would think the Apostle Paul would say, if you're a slave, flee, get out of there. But that's not what he says. Essentially, he says, you be the best slave you can be. Don't steal from your master. You serve your master very well. Seek to please him in all that you do. But the, what's the motivation? That they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That they may make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Historians will tell, tell us that it was the influence of Christianity that helped lead to the eradication of slavery in the first century. How could that make that kind of impact? You take a Christian slave who did his best to serve his master faithfully, loyally, and to the best of his ability. What kind of impression could that leave on the master? And the master may say, you're my slave. Why are you doing such a good job why are you so loyal to me and that Christian slave could say because that's what Jesus wants me to do who is this Jesus and by the behavior of his slave by the way there's instruction given to Christian slave owners and by their good treatment of their slaves the same dialogue could be shared but what happened you had Christian slave owners and Christian slaves living the way Christ wanted them to, to the point where they realized this isn't, this isn't right. This isn't right for me to treat you badly. You're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. And so that, that, that type of teaching, that kind of influence uh, ended slavery to a great, to a great extent. But the point is this, we're to so live to make the doctrine, the teaching about God attractive. But the influence of these false teachers was not making it attractive. It was making it repulsive. That was one of the effects of this false teaching. One other effect or one other point about this false teaching from verses 2 and 3. We see the ultimate end of false teaching. And that is, that is destruction. He alludes to the fact that sentencing had been passed previously on false prophets. And you can go back to Deuteronomy 13 and see uh, God's judgment about these false, false prophets. And it might look as if that sentence had become inoperative or was slumbering. But Peter is warning and he's promising. Judgment delayed does not mean judgment denied. There will be 
uh, judgment of God upon these false teachers. And it will be destruction. No person who leads another astray will ever escape the judgment of God. That's how strong this language is. Concerning this idea of, well, they haven't been judged so far, so that means they're not going to be judged. Then Peter gives three examples when he discusses the fate of the wicked and the rescue of the righteous. And he alludes to three examples from from the scriptures of when God judged the wicked. And here are those three examples. Verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, that's the Greek word there is Tartarus, not Gehenna, which we understand, uh, which is the main word for hell. There was so much that I read about this and still reading. In Greek thought, Tartarus was in the very bottom of hell. So there's different ideas about that terminology. But he did not spare these angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved. It may be pits of darkness to be reserved for judgment. In the midst of a lot of questions about exactly to what does that refer, notice this truth that Peter is relaying. There were angels who sinned and God punished them. If God punished angels, will he punish the wicked? Will he, if God punished angels, will he spare the wicked? And the answer is no. Here's a second example. Verse 5, if God did not spare the ancient world, bringing in the flood on the world of ungodly, the, the idea is, If he punished those in the ancient world with the flood, will he spare the wicked? And the answer again is no, he won't. And this has reference to when the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And it made God sad that he had created man and essentially says, I'm going to start over and sent the global flood to destroy every living thing. I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. That was God's judgment. Peter saying, if God judged the ungodly then, will he spare the wicked today? And the answer is no. Third example. If God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. If God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, will he spare the wicked today? And the answer is no. From these three examples, these three examples, we see that He's citing these examples of God's judgment upon the wicked as proof that he means what he says when he will judge the wicked today. Concerning Sodom and Gomorrah, we'd have to go to Genesis 18 and 19 for the full story. You remember how Abraham, when he was told that that, uh, God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot, his nephews, living in Sodom, he says, well, Lord, what if, he find, what if I find 50 righteous people? Will you spare the city? 
And he whittles that number down uncomfortably to, to us as we read it. Abraham, how are you asking God this? But he, he takes that number from 50 all the way down to 10. And, and the Lord agrees, if you find 10 righteous people, I will spare the city. But he couldn't even find 10. Angelic, angelic visitors come to Lot. And he opened his home to them. The people of Sodom knocked on his door and, and demanded that those visitors be brought out. That they may satisfy their unnatural lusts. Jude put it like this. Referring to Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. Having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And Peter's saying, if God judged those cities, will he spare the wicked? No. If God judged those three groups for their wickedness, then the Lord knows how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. In other words, just because you haven't seen it happen yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. I'm reminded of the old story about the agnostic farmer who wrote to the editor of his local newspaper who was a Christian. He said, in defiance of your God, I plowed my fields this year on Sunday. I, I disked and fertilized the fields on Sunday. I planted them on Sunday. I cultivated them on Sunday. I reaped from them on Sunday. This October, I had the biggest crop I've ever had. How do you explain that? The editor, the Christian editor responded, God does not always settle his accounts in October. In other words, judgment hasn't come yet, but it will come. That's what Peter is saying. Warning about the effects of this false teaching. Just because judgment hasn't come yet doesn't mean that it's not coming. The fate of the wicked is destruction. But he also says in this same text that the righteous will be rescued. Watch this. In two of the three examples, you'll remember the righteous were saved. They were spared by God. Back to verse 5. We'll read it in its entirety. God did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. He judged the ungodly, but he saved Noah and his family. And Noah is called, in this text by Peter, a preacher of righteousness. If you go back to Genesis 6 through 8, we don't see where Noah was preaching as he's building the ark. It could be that as he, was pre as he was building the ark, that those who would come and, my guess is, mock him for building a boat when they'd probably never ever seen rain. And he's saying there's going to be so much water, it's going to flood the whole earth. And they're probably laughing and mocking. And his response is, you better repent. You better surrender to God. You better straighten up so you can get on this ark with me. So that you can be saved. Or it may just be that despite the 
mocking the insults that he most likely heard, Noah kept believing God and kept building the ark. And by his actions was preaching a preacher of righteousness to those around him. But the point is, even in the midst of God's judgment upon the wicked, he saved Noah and his family. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered, Peter says, righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Peter tells us something that we don't read about in the record in Genesis. How did Lot feel about this gross immorality Homosexuality, other things, other sins in this, in Sodom. It was selfishness that had led him to take the well-watered plain of Sodom. You remember that? And it had led into this environment, uh, this sinful, sin-filled culture. How did Lot feel about living, raising his family in that environment? Peter says, He was oppressed by this. He was lamenting or tormented uh, by, by witnessing this gross immorality and hearing of their lawless deeds. And so God spared. He lingered, Genesis says, but the angels that were sent took hold of him and led him out. He was willing to make a break from sin. He'd been... Tormented in that environment, but he was willing to make a break. And unfortunately, whether it was curiosity or a longing for the life back in Sodom, you remember Lot's wife turned back. She wasn't willing to make that break. And she turned into a pillar of salt. But even in that judgment upon these wicked cities, God spared righteous Lot and his family. The message is, if God rescued Noah and Lot, then the Lord knows how to to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. How then shall we live? Peter says, be careful about to whom you listen. There are a lot of voices competing for your attention. There are a lot of voices leading you in different directions. You got to be careful. You got to exercise discernment and know this that the fate of the wicked is destruction, but the righteous will be rescued. How can we know? How can we discern which is the right voice to listen to? The only way to tell. If what you're hearing is true or false, is to compare it to the standard of God's Word. That's the only way. I'm told in today's uh, currency, there are safeguards to protect uh, the validity of our currency. Watermark and security features in our currency. But I'm told that previously there would be those that, would, that were trained to 
fight to identify counterfeit money. You know how they did it? This is before the watermarks and the security seals. They looked at the real thing in such meticulous way, in such a meticulous way, that when a counterfeit passed before them, it was instantly recognized. That's the only way that we'll be able to determine whether what we're hearing is true or false. That we know the real thing so well that when anything contrary is spoken into our ears, we recognize that's false. And I don't want anything to do with that false teaching that could lead me away from the way of salvation through Christ. Take heed how you hear, Jesus says. If tonight you are subject to the, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you're ready to put the Lord on in baptism, as the word states that we should do as penitent believers to have our sins washed away, we extend the invitation of Jesus to you. If you need the prayers of the church tonight, won't you come right now as we stand and sing?